Thanks for downloading the UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording of a lecture by Professor Anthony Roach of the University College Dublin School of English, Drama and Film. Professor Roach's lecture, Shakespeare, The Chap That Writes Like Sing, was given as part of the 2014 UCD Abbey Theatre Shakespeare Lectures. The lecture was introduced by Dr Jane Grogan. It's a particular pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, uh, my colleague and friend, Professor Anthony Roach of the School of English Drama and Film, UCD. It's no easy thing trying to gather together and summarise Tony's many achievements, but I I could begin, I suppose, by mentioning his major publications, or at least uh, a sample from the last few years. He's published seven books, dozens of book chapters and articles, as well as editing nine issues of the Irish University Review. And he doesn't seem to let up either. This day last week, in fact, he was writing the final sentences of his latest book, The Irish Dramatic Revival, 1899-1939, to be published by Methuen next year. It's already widely anticipated. His book on contemporary Irish drama has been deemed indispensable and is now in its second edition. A collection of Tony's writings on Sing over the years has been gathered together for a really lovely collection which came out last year, Sing and the Making of Irish Drama. His 2011 monograph, Brian Friel, Theatre and Politics, got rave reviews, most of which described it as a seminal work in Friel studies, and the rest of which finished up as fan mail, basically asking Tony to please write some more stuff. And that's, as I say, just to give a sense of his recent work. Alternatively, I suppose I could also uh, try another approach uh, at introducing him, and I could try and patch together some of the fields in which he's recognised as a leading authority. And he is, of course, an acknowledged expert uh, on 20th century and contemporary Irish drama. But he's also regularly consulted on other writers and forms as well. So, for example, if, uh, if tonight's talk isn't enough for you, you could wander down to the National Library and hear Tony speaking about Yeats and the wonderful uh, exhibition that they have there. Or you could consult his work on Harold Pinter or the London theatre scene. Last September, uh, um, he gave a really beautiful and brilliant tribute to the late Seamus Heaney on RTE Radio. And he's now returning to Shakespeare, an earlier love, to our great good fortune. I suppose my point is that it's not just that he's published seminal work on a range of authors, but also that he has such expertise in a whole panoply of other areas too. Film, music, Shakespeare, even comic books. Uh, Tony has it all at his fingertips. And I've found him, uh, for my own part, consistently generous and wise uh, as a colleague and collaborator, much like, in fact, uh, one of those figures of good counsel that you tend to find in early Tudor drama. So after all of that, I've concluded that my own period, in fact, the Renaissance, uh, is the one that gives me the best way of describing Tony to you tonight. Although he's a leading scholar of Irish literature, let me assure you that Tony is, in fact, a Renaissance man. Um, that is, he's gracious, uh, he is a gracious and brilliant polymath, intellectually agile, and extraordinarily well-read. And he's somebody whose great passion for literature is at the heart of everything he does. So please join me in welcoming uh, Professor Tony Roach for tonight's lecture, Shakespeare, the chap that writes like sing. Thank you, Jane, for those very generous words. It's all downhill from here, folks. Um, I want to thank her. Uh, She, too, is a 
dear friend and colleague, and it's been a real pleasure um, helping her, working with her on this um, Abbey UCD series, uh, which is her initiative, but I've done my little bit over the last few years. Um, with colleagues like that, it, it, it puts the humanities back into what I often call the inhumanities. Um, I'd like to thank everybody for coming. The title is... Shakespeare, the chap that writes like Sing, and my title is drawn from the witty remark made by Buck Mulligan in the ninth chapter of Joyce's Ulysses. The chapter is set in the National Library of Ireland in the director T.W. Lister's office. It involves a wide-ranging discussion of William Shakespeare by a group of Dublin literati, led by Stephen Dedalus. Stephen develops a twofold theory on the English playwright in the course of the chapter. The first part of his theory argues against the notion, the romantic notion, that Shakespeare is to be identified with young Prince Hamlet as, quote, a hesitating soul taking arms against a sea of troubles, unquote. Rather, Stephen argues, Shakespeare should be identified with Hamlet Pear, not Fis. When he wrote the play, William Shakespeare was 35 years of age, quote, with 50 of experience a greying man with two marriageable daughters and not the beardless undergraduate from Wittenberg. Shakespeare at the time, as Stephen Greenblatt puts it in his 2004 biography, Will in the World, was enduring the death of his son Hamlet and the impending death of his father. Joyce actually has it that the father had already died, but that's not quite right. He died shortly afterwards. Um, he also, as theatre historians have long noted, played the ghost of King Hamlet in the play's original production. If one half of Stephen's theory has to do with relations between fathers and sons, and I'll come back to that later in the talk, on the nature of paternity, the other half speculates on the relation between husband and wife, William Shakespeare and Anne Hathaway, with a great deal of punning on the latter's surname, if others have their will, Anne Hathaway. Stephen advances the scenario that the sexually experienced and older Anne, 26 to William's 18, was the active sexual protagonist in their relationship, and that Shakespeare went from Stratford to London, losing his wife to gain a world of men. Um, I'm not going to say any more about that. That relates more to Ulysses and what's going on with Bloom and Molly. But there is an, a very important other aspect of the chapter that has not been much commented on that I want to foreground of the talk. John Millington Singh is not one of the writers of the Irish Literary Revival present in the National Library on 16th of June 1904. And I, I remember thinking last year, where was he? <laughs> where was he on the 16th of June? He's not in the library. Um, well, in fact, he was at home in uh, Dublin on that date, at home in Crossway Park, Kingstown, as it was known then, or Dunleary, putting the finishing touches to his new three-act play, The Well of the Saints. In fact, it was read to the Abbey Theatre Company um, the next day, June 17th. We have a very good account of it in Joseph Holloway's diaries. If a ghost is, quote, one who has faded into impalpability through death or through absence, unquote, as Joyce's text defines it, then Singh is the ghost who haunts the library scene in Ulysses, and he does so through his absence. Although not present, and other writers are present, for example, George Russell A.E. is there, Singh is repeatedly named in the text. Lines from his plays inform the writing. The chapter in the library has two concerns. 
Stephen's artful interweaving of Shakespeare's life and plays and a discussion all the way through of the nascent Irish literary revival by the writers and scholars present. At one level, it represents Stephen's social exclusion from the cliques of the literary revival, his Ibsenite resolve to stand again, apart and alone. I mean, it's very obvious they're all, they're all being asked to, to, to Moors that night and Stephen has not been invited. But this is undercut by the figure of Singh, with whom Stephen is associated all the way through. At one point, he recalls his meeting with Singh in Paris, and this is based on the real-life encounter between the two Irish writers in the French capital in March 1903, when they argued passionately about art and literature for hours together. Here's the quote from the chapter. And this is a description of Singh, close up, as it were, a rather terrifying one. Harsh gargoyle face that warred against me over our massive hash of lights in Rue Saint-André-des-Arts, murdering Irish. His image wandering, he met. I mind. I met a fool in the forest. This vivid memory of Singh in Paris concludes with the line from As You Like It, spoken by Jaquiz about Touchstone, which suggests that the two Irish writers are mirror images of each other. The character who brings Singh most to the fore in the public discussion of Shakespeare is Buck Mulligan, who makes his entrance exactly halfway through the chapter when Stephen's theory is well advanced. It's actually called End of Act One, and it's Enter Buck. Hearing Shakespeare's name, Buck responds as follows. Shakespeare, he said. I seem to know the name. A flying, sunny smile rayed his loose features. To be sure, he said, remembering brightly, the chap that writes like Singh. In his 1937 memoir, As I Was Going Down Sackville Street, Oliver St. John Gogarty, the real-life original on which Joyce based the character of Buck, finally put into print the oral story he'd been circulating for 32 years. It's like stand-up comedians, you know, he finally wrote it all down. Mulligan was also the author of... Uh, Gogarty and Mulligan were the author of scurrilous, obscene poems that were, that were not written down, that were circulated. There are several of them in Ulysses. I presume there is, anyway. Um, the story was that in 1902, Singh, Maud Garn, playwright and poet Porrick Cullum, and Oliver St. John Gogarty were present at Yeats's first reading of Singh's Riders to the Sea. I and mean, this is from Gogarty's memoir. Suddenly, Yeats exclaimed, in admiration of a scene he was reading... Aeschylus. Who does he mean? Porrick Column whispered, amazed. Singh, who was like Aeschylus. But who was Aeschylus? The man who was like Singh. Yeats's initial promotion of Singh's playwriting by referencing the classic Greek tragedians goaded and annoyed Joyce. And so when Singh showed him the Riders to the Sea in Paris in March 1903, Joyce devoted most of the time to riddling, as he described it as Samus, riddling Riders to the Sea to prove that as a tragedy it was totally non-Aristotelian. But even at that early stage, as his brother remarked, Joyce had already committed most of the old woman Moria's great speeches to memory. Joyce was also later to translate Singh's one-act play into Italian, and in Zurich in 1918, he mounted a production of Riders to the Sea in which his wife, Nora Barnacle, played the older of Moria's two daughters. He actually provided a song for it as well. He was off stage singing, and the children, um, their two children, um, Lucia and Giorgio, were in the crowd scenes. Buck Mulligan comes out with several Hiberno-English lines from Riders to the Sea in the library chapter. Quote, 
There he keen the wailing rune, Pogue Mahone, a Kushla McCree. It's destroyed we are from this day, it's destroyed we are, surely. When Moya tells Kathleen, the part Nora Barnacle was to play, that she has seen the image of her dead son at the well, the daughter breaks out into the keen or lament for the dead and cries, it's destroyed we are from this day, it's destroyed, surely. So that's a direct quote from the play. Of the first two phrases in Buck's parody, both of which are in Irish, the second, a Cushla McCree, sounds more like something from the 19th century Irish melodrama of Dion Busica. It's safe to say that the first, which means kiss my arse in Irish, does not feature in any of Singh's plays and has been added by the profane Mulligan. But Buck, in this chapter, speaks other lines parodying Singh, which he could not possibly have said in the National Library on the 16th of June, 1904, because they had not been written yet, such as the following, It's what I'm telling you, Mr Honey, it's queer and sick we were, Haynes and myself. "'Twas murmur we did for a gallus potion would rouse a friar, I'm thinking. When Stephen laughs at Buck's parody, the latter greets him with, "'The tramper singer is looking for you,' he said, "'to murder you.' He heard you pissed on his hall door in Glastool. <laughs> Stephen said, no, that was your contribution to literature. He's out in Pamputis to murder you. The incident of one man pursuing another to murder him derives, of course, from Sings the Playboy of the Western World, with Singh here occupying the role of Old Mahon in relation to the younger Irish writer. As Anne Fogarty has argued, the quote, Tramper Singh as vengeful paternal spirit is an analogue of the theory of Shakespeare who played the ghost of Hamlet's father in his creation, unquote. But Singh's Playboy of the Western World would not be premiered at the Abbey Theatre until January 1907, 31 months after Bloomsday. Mulligan's speech deploys several phrases peculiar to Playboy. Mr. Honey is used when Christy Mahon first tells the male villagers of his deed, and one responds, that was a hanging crime, Mr. Honey. And gallus is the unusual term from gallows of approbation used by Peggy Mike in one of the play's most famous lines. There's a great gap between a gallus story and a dirty deed. Joyce prophesies Singh's masterpiece in this way because by the time of writing Ulysses in, from 1914 on, he had moved well beyond his initial mixed response to Riders to the Sea and could admit that with the staging of Playboy, Singh's nagin was on the increase. A real sense of one writer warily watching a competitor. In the Ulysses version of Singh's paradoxical relationship to his great dramatic precursors, Shakespeare has replaced Aeschylus. The remark is not reported by Gogarty, but made by Mulligan. What it does is to posit a parallel between and intricately intertwine Stephen's discussion of Shakespeare and the chapter's concern with the founding of a national Irish theatre. At one point, it is remarked that our national epic has yet to be written. In a chapter which circles around William Shakespeare and his plays, the question is not just who will write Ireland's national epic, to which James Joyce's Ulysses has supplied the answer 18 years later, but who will write Ireland's national play? Quote, Our young Irish bards, John Eglinton censured, have yet to create a figure which the world has set besides Saxon Shakespeare's Hamlet. Unquote. During the summer of 1904, when Ulysses is set, the Abbey Theatre was under construction. The discussion of a national theatre in the National Library of Ireland takes place in the shadow of that fact. 
It finally surfaces at the close when Mulligan remarks, quote, We went over to their play box, Haynes and I, the plumber's hall. This was um, the, mer- the, um, the Mechanics Institute. Thank you, Chris, for the prompt. The Mechanics Institute, uh, which uh, inveterate playwright and architect Joseph Holloway was rebuilding as the site of the new theatre, funded by the TRS Miss Annie Horniman. To continue with Buck, he says, Our players are creating a new art for Europe, like the Greeks, or Monsieur Maeterlinck, that's the Belgian playwright, Mars Maeterlinck, the Abbey Theatre, unquote. A mere three years away was the play which was to make the new Abbey Theatre's reputation worldwide, Sings Playboy the Western World, and its lines are prominent, as I hope I have shown, throughout the library chapter. I've already indicated how they feature in Buck Mulligan's parody of Sing's speech, but they also feature in Stephen's account of Shakespearean London, uh, when Stephen talks of, quote, Lady Penelope Rich, a clean-quality woman, is suited for a player. He does so without embarrassment or exaggeration in Sing's idiom, echoing Peggy Mike's written request for, quote, a hat is suited for a wedding day. If Ireland's national epic in prose is going to be written by Joyce and Ulysses, Singh, as national playwright, will, in Christopher Mahon, quote, create a figure which the world will set beside Saxon, Shakespeare's Hamlet. OK, that's the end of that section, the library, Buck Mulligan, etc. Now we move on to, to Yeats. While Yeats may routinely have compared Singh's drama to the Greeks, it was to Shakespeare he turned when planning and thinking about the opening of Ireland's National Theatre. In May of 1901, Yeats visited Stratford-upon-Avon, and he wrote about it in the essay that Michael Dobson referred to in last week's lecture. I knew we'd hear that again. The year 1901 was a crucial and pivotal one in the creation of an Irish national theatre. It was the third and final year of the three-year experiment of the Irish Literary Theatre, which Yeats and Lady Gregory had hit upon as a means of seeing whether there was a desire for Irish drama amongst the people. Annually, they presented a series of plays in various venues, several of them by Yeats. The three, the three seasons, the third was still to come when he went to Stratford-on-Avon in October 1901, proved a success, but it had, Yeats thought, several shortcomings. The actors were supplied by Frank Benson's Shakespearean company, whom Yeats was to see perform in Stratford, and some of the English actors had trouble with Celtic names like Quilcher. The nearest they could come was Wheelchair. <laughs> But Irish actors appeared in 1901 when two extraordinary brothers, Frank and Willie Fay, approached Yeats and offered him the services of their Irish National Dramatic Company. They both um, acted uh, and Willie Fay directed and Frank Fay um, coached, um, coached them in, in speaking uh, the lines. Um, he readily accepted and Yeats and Gregory wrote Kathleen Nihoulihan for them to perform, which they did to acclaim in 1902. So there were the Irish actors. But Yeats thought a great Irish playwright was also lacking. But John Millington Singh was watching and waiting in the wings. He attended two of the three ILT performances and wrote about them for European journals. At Yeats's urging, as we know famously, he made a series of annual visits to the Aran Islands. And in 1901, he was going there for his fourth visit when he stopped off in Cool Park to show them the prose narrative he was writing about the Aran Islands, which they very much liked. To Yeats and Lady Gregory's surprise... Singh also presented them with a play, When the Moon Has Set, which they promptly rejected. It was actually um, set against his own background of landowners in, in County Wicklow. It was after that, as Yeats remarked, that Singh turned to peasant drama, 
and in 1902 he wrote for them two one-act masterpieces, Riders to the Sea and Shadow of the Glen. They had Irish actors and soon a great Irish playwright. But the founders also needed a purpose-built theatre. The ILT plays had been performed in a series of unsuitable venues, the ancient concert rooms, the Gaiety Theatre and so on, uh, and the play since in a small hall down in Dublin's side street. But this in mind, Yeats headed to Stratford-on-Avon. There, in the course of the week, again, as Michael told us last week, he saw an extraordinary succession of Shakespeare's history plays performed by Frank Benson's company. King John, Richard II, the second part of Henry IV, Henry V, the second part of Henry VI, and Richard III played in the right order. His double response to the experience is significant and was to prove prophetic. He writes, quote, Partly because of a spirit in the place, and partly because of the way play supports play, the theatre has moved me as it has never done before, unquote. The spirit of the place is worth pausing over. Yeats's essay targets the metropolitan centre when he writes that, quote, a bitter hatred of London is becoming a mark of those that love the arts, unquote. And he goes on to argue for a necessary distance from London as a remove, a geographical remove, in order to restore the idea of theatre as art rather than commerce. And, of course, the art-commerce debate bedevils all theatre, but the Abbey in particular, given its status as a national theatre. In this way, Yeats consciously aligns and parallels Stratford-on-Avon and Dublin, writing of the former in lines that Michael Dobson quoted last week as a theatre that has been made not to make money, but for the pleasure of making it. That sends a shudder down the backs of the the people in Stratford who are running the theatre. Gregory and Yeats only got a patent to open a theatre in Dublin because they argued that it would not compete with the capital's overtly commercial houses like the Olympia, the Gaiety, the Royal and so on, the Queen's. At the same time, if only very small audiences attended their plays, the theatre could not continue to operate, even with Miss Horniman's financial support. But as a national theatre, they were consciously writing for the people and in the hope that in the end, enough of them would come that they would succeed in winning acclaim for their more experimental form of theatre. In the event, the few plays that drew large audiences were also, almost inevitably, the most controversial and were greeted by riots in the theatre. Sings Playboy, as mentioned earlier, but also Sean O'Casey's The Plough and the Stars in 1926. The leading female role in Playboy, Peggy Mike, was written by Singh for his fiancée, Abbey actress Molly Allgood, and as he wrote to her on the 27th of January 1907, after the play's tumultuous opening night, quote, It is better any day to have the row we had last night than to have your play fizzling out in half-hearted applause. Now we'll be talked about. We're an event in the history of the Irish stage. Also striking is Yeats's decision to regard Shakespeare's history plays as a consciously constructed cycle, one in which, though the plays can be enjoyed individually, they benefit from being seen together, which, where the links which bind them together can be more clearly seen. At the opening of the Abbey Theatre in December 1904, Yeats's contribution was a play called On Bolia Strand, centering on the mythological warrior from the Ulster cycle, Cuchulain. It was to be the first of a cycle of five plays that Yeats wrote about, his, about Cuchulain across his career. The final one, The Death of Cuchulain, was composed when Yeats was on his own deathbed at the age of 73. He also wrote a wonderful poem 
on his deathbed called Cú Colin Comforted, which was uh, Seamus Heaney's favourite Yeats poem. He could recite it from memory. On Bolyar's Strand is one of the most consciously Shakespearean of Yeats's plays. The conflict between Cúchulain and Ulster's King Connor over the taking of an oath which will bring the warrior's willful impulses to heal and have him serve the state is clearly modelled on the exchanges between Shakespeare's Richard II and Bolingbroke, the future Henry IV, in which the former is imprisoned and persuaded to hand over his crown. Yeats says a good deal about Richard and Bolingbroke, these two complementary dramatic characters, in his essay on Stratford-on-Avon. He does so in relation to a tradition of Shakespearean criticism in which Richard is viewed as a failure and Bolingbroke as a success. Quote, Shakespearean criticism became a vulgar worshipper of success. I have turned over many books in the library at Stratford-on-Avon. Yeats always likes to tell you the amount of intellectual work he's had to do. Uh, I've turned over many books. He's also vague about them. He never, he never has any of the details. I've turned over many books in the library at Stratford-on-Avon, and I have found in nearly all an antithesis between two types. These representatives were Richard II, sentimental, weak, selfish, insincere, and Henry V, Shakespeare's only hero. Those terms are quotes that he puts in. Yeats may claim that he is generalising about Shakespearean criticism from having made so many books by various scholars, but he is one Shakespearean critic in his sights, and very soon he names him. Edward Dowden, the Professor of English at Trinity College Dublin and the author of Shakespeare, A Critical Study of His Mind and Art. As Yeats says, quote, I know that Professor Dowden, whose book I once read carefully, first made these emotions eloquent and plausible. He lived in Ireland where everything has failed. Sounds like Beckett, doesn't he? And he meditated frequently upon the perfection of character which had, he thought, made England successful, unquote. Dunn's book, Yeats goes on to say, evinces imperial enthusiasm, and he criticises its author for his colonial stance, siding with the success ethic that he thought Bolingbroke embodied, although, as Yeats astutely noted, in the longer run, like all of the Shakespearean monarchs, Henry V was to fail. Rather than with the more Irish Richard II, who possessed, quote, certain qualities that were uncommon in all ages, unquote. Edward Dowden had been a friend of the poet's father, John Butler Yeats, and they both attended Trinity College Dublin. And as Terence Brown has noted, Yeats's argument here draws in his father's own debate with Dowden over Richard II, where the painter rebuked the professor for not seeing Richard's qualities of, quote, goodness of bravery and chivalry and comradeship and true love, unquote. Further, as Brown writes, since Dowden had accepted his chair of English literature at Trinity in 1867, he had represented for the apprentice painter the terrible danger to the artistic temperament that a need for bourgeois security occasioned, unquote. W.B. Yeats was later to remark about J.M. Singh that, quote, he was a graduate of Trinity College Dublin, and Trinity College does not, as a rule, produce artistic minds. Unquote. How could Yeats say this, except perhaps for the fact that his academic record was not sufficiently good to get him admitted to Trinity in the first place? And did not John Butler Yeats have an artistic mind, or to cite the case of another recent graduate, Oscar Wilde, possibly the most artistic mind that ever existed? Anyway, these animadversions did not prevent Yeats from applying for the professorship in English at Trinity years later when Edward Dowden died. Perhaps his application was unsuccessful because he consistently misspelled professor. 
Actually, he inconsistently misspelled it. He spells it about three different ways in the letter. Anyway, there you go. That's embracing consistency. As Yates noted, John Millington Singh attended Trinity College, Dublin, in the years from 1888 to 1892, when Singh graduated with a first-class honours in... Sorry, a first place. He wasn't an honour. In Hebrew and Irish. Although, according to Anne Saddlemeyer's invaluable chronology, Singh had told his evangelical mother in 1889 that he would no longer attend the Church of Ireland services except during the summers he spent with her in County Wicklow, she appears to have derived some hope and consolation from, from the fact that her son chose Hebrew and Irish as his degree subjects, because those are the subjects taken by, by those trained to be clergymen, like Singh's elder brother Samuel. As Singh records of his time in Trinity, quote, In those days, if an odd undergraduate wished to learn a little of the Irish language and went to the professor appointed to teach it in Trinity College, he found an amiable old clergyman, James Goodman, who made him read a crabbed version of the New Testament, and who seemed to know nothing, or at least to care nothing, about the old literature of Ireland, unquote. If Samuel Singh, his older brother, was to become a missionary to China, their uncle, the Reverend Alexander Singh, had gone to the Aran Islands in 1851 as the first Protestant missionary there. He went to Inishmore. Excuse me. Actually, when Singh gets off the boat at the start of the Aran Islands, this man comes up to him and says, would you be a man of the name of Singh? Recognises the nephew. I think that's why Singh moves on to the next island myself. Anyway. Um, uh, using the Irish, uh, Alexander had learned in Trinity to preach to the islanders. When his nephew John first went there 37 years later, it was to be converted rather than to convert. On Aaron, as in his studies in Paris at the Sorbonne, Singh developed his knowledge of Irish both as a spoken and a scholarly language. But even as a teenager in Trinity, as Declan Kybert has shown in his definitive Singh in the Irish language, he extended his studies to Irish well beyond the extracts from the Old Testament into the old literature of Ireland, making painstaking translations of the children of Lear and Dermot and Gráinne. But Nicholas Green's detailed notes on the Singh manuscripts at Trinity College Dublin, and I'm very grateful to Nicholas Green for helping me with this, uh, some aspects of this talk over the last week, um, what that they, the notes indicate that while an undergraduate in Trinity, J.M. Singh attended lectures on Shakespeare by Edward Dowden. The notebook, which contains these lecture notes, also contains lengthy extracts from Dowden's book, Shakespeare, A Critical Study of His Mind and Art. Since Singh's degree subjects were known to be Hebrew and Irish, and he made so much of the latter language in his development as a writer, scarcely any attention has been paid to this early interest of Singh in Shakespeare. As someone who was taking a general or past degree at Trinity, he was encouraged to sample a smattering of other subjects, the most interesting and influential of which on his subsequent development were music and English. Yeah, and he has this notebook. I was actually given the notebook, which is great. It wasn't a microfilm. It was very small and bound together. And in true Protestant fashion, it doesn't, doesn't waste a bit of paper. It's all written over. The first feature of his notes on English is a lengthy series of brief quotations, usually of two lines, sometimes of four, from a number of classical English authors, Shakespeare and Milton foremost among them. The one from King Lear's opening scene... I thought the king had more affected the Duke of Albany than Cornwall, unquote, seems unexceptional, until one notes that it is paired with a line from Twelfth Night. Maria once told me she did affect me, in what is clearly intended on the, uh, as a gloss on the Elizabethan use of the term affect as a verb, 
to show a preference for. What makes this practice interesting in terms of what Singh does when it comes to referencing Shakespeare in his own plays is that when Singh references Shakespeare in his plays, he does so overtly and recognisably with a quoted line or two. He always puts a line in that is obviously a quote from Shakespeare rather than burying it below the surface. So, for example, the saint in The Well of the Saints, at the end of Act One, turns to the woman of the play's central couple, who has just been arguing, and counsels her, and let you not be raising your voice, a bad thing in a woman, unquote. In a letter to Singh, Yeats pointed out the similarity of the saint's phrasing to Shakespeare's King Lear, specifically the moment late in Act Five, when the grieving king says of his dead daughter Cordelia, her voice was ever soft, gentle and low, an excellent thing in a woman. Yeats bizarrely objected to the reference because he said it suggested the saint, quote, has been reading King Lear and it creates a wrong association in the mind. But Singh was not impressed by the criticism and left the line in. The saint's remark may suggest he is a misogynist, but what the play's characters remark on more than once is his sexual naivety. As the self-regarding Molly Byrne puts it, he'd walk by the finest woman in Ireland, I'm thinking, and not trouble to raise his two eyes to look upon her face. But the King Lear reference, as was Singh's practice, uh, was not intended to map one play upon the other in a point-by-point correspondence. Rather, it is designed, I think, to shed light on one key parallel or relation between the plays for an audience to consider. As Yeats intuited, Singh intended the reference to King Lear to be recognised as such and to encourage the audience to cast about for a reason and then to think, perhaps, about the prominence of physical blindness in both plays. In, in The Well of the Saints, Martin and Mary Dowell are a blind old couple who are offered a miraculous cure by the saint, which they accept and which leads to disastrous consequences. The cure serves to disillusion the Dowells when they behold the ugliness rather than the beauty of the world and of each other. When their sight goes again, they reject a second cure and choose to live by their own vision of the world. In King Lear, Gloucester suffers the classical tragic fate when he only gains insight into the truth of things by being physically blinded. But Lear has been suffering from a moral blindness in relation to his own daughters. His disillusionment leads initially to impotent raging against Goneril and Regan and the heavens before achieving a measure of illumination and transcendence with Cordelia before her death. The Sing and Shakespeare plays are mutually enriched by a comparative study of how they treat blindness and particularly by the interrelated themes of disillusionment and the gaining of insight. Okay, that's, that's the King Lear, well, the saints bit. I had to get it in somewhere. Now back to Dowden. Dowden's Shakespeare lectures fan out to consider such other writers of the Elizabethan period as Sir Thomas More's Utopia. And in a lecture of 13th of February, 1889, he observes memory that, quote, people generally complain more during a period of change, unquote. This is something Singh himself must also have reflected upon in the complaints directed against such plays of his as Riders to the Sea and Playboy when they were staged. There may even be an echo of Dowden's observation, whether conscious or no, in Singh's remark to Molly Allgood that the complaints over Playboy mean that they are an event in the history of the Irish stage. What Dowden claims of Shakespeare is no less true for the playwright Singh, that he would not repeat himself as he works out various possibilities for an emergent Irish theatre. The promotion of success and the statement that to fail is the supreme sin 
those values that Yeats identified and so objected to in the criticism of Dowden on Shakespeare emerge in the extracts from his life and art noted down by Singh, although it has to be said more in relation to the history plays than to the tragedies. But the one sentence in the many pages that Singh troubles to underline, and his, his, his annotations are minimal, is Dowden's generalisation. Quote, Shakespeare, if an idealist, was above all else a realist in art. That which appears to be common to all of the Elizabethan writers, Bacon, Hooker, Shakespeare, is a rich feeling for positive, concrete fact. And that's underlined, that statement, a rich feeling for positive, concrete fact. Where you can find out what Yeats thought about Shakespeare fairly readily, since he will have written about the subject at length in such essays at Stratford-on-Avon, Singh is a very different case indeed. He allowed his plays to speak for themselves, and one only comes across a few, albeit loaded, references to Shakespeare in his brief prose writings. Like all of Singh's artistic statements, they are cryptic and require decoding. In 1908, he wrote that, quote, No one is less fond of theories and divisions in the arts than I am. But he makes an exception by theorising, as follows, in a key artistic formulation in which Shakespeare's name is prominent. Quote, For a long time, he writes, I have felt that poetry is of two kinds, the poetry of real life, the poetry of Burns and Shakespeare and Villon, and the poetry of A Land of the Fancy, the poetry of Spencer and Keats and Ronsard. So far, so Dowden. Shakespeare is realist. But then Singh complicates and adds to the critical formulation and makes it his own. Quote, That is obvious enough. It's putting down in this place. But what is highest in poetry is always reached where the dreamer is leaning out to reality or where the man of real life is lifted out of it. And in all the poets, the greatest have both these elements. That is, they are supremely engrossed with life and yet with the wildness of their fancy they are always passing out of what is simple or plain, unquote. Shakespeare now finds himself admitted to this company of greater poets, leaving behind the four other writers named as either realists or dreamers. And instead, Shakespeare now joins the company of Dante and Chaucer and Goethe. Singh as a scholar was always interested in comparative studies and always sought to make parallels across cultures. The course he took with Professor Darbois de Joubainville at the Sorbonne in Paris was entitled The Civilization of Ireland Compared with That of Homer. And he delighted when he found the rudiments of Shakespeare's Cymbeline in an oral folktale related to him on the Aran Islands by a storyteller who had never read or seen the English play. Here, in his series about the poets of real life and the land of the fancy, Singh moves from figures from world literature, like Shakespeare and Dante, to Ireland, again the comparatist world literature, Ireland, where he first considers the case of Yeats. Quote, in Ireland, Mr. Yeats, one of the poets of the fancy land, has interests in the world, and for this reason, his poetry has had a lifetime in itself. Unquote. To give a negative example of an Irish writer who is restricted to one or the other category, Singh lights on A.E., George Russell, who's also in the library scene, and his judgment is withering. Quote, A.E., on the other hand, and who is in so many ways, like Yeats as a mystic and a poet and idealist, A.E., on the other hand, is of the fancy land only, and he ended his career in poetry in his first volume. Unquote. So ends the paragraph. But what it leaves open and unfilled is the question... Who, then, is the Irish writer who balances Yeats, 
Who is the Irish writer who is, quote, supremely engrossed with real life, and yet with the wildness of their fancy, are always passing out of what is simple and plain? The answer that must immediately have come to mind, and would have done in 1908 when this was written, is John Millington Singh, in an unvoiced yet clear parallel with Shakespeare. Singh here uses the term poets, even when describing a playwright like Shakespeare, just as the literati in the library chapter of Ulysses did. And the remarks about Yeats may well refer to his poetry, since that constituted the core of his achievement. But the one other entry about Shakespeare in the Singh manuscripts in Trinity College Dublin explicitly mentions Yeats the playwright, and so is interesting on that score. This, the pocketbook in which this, he writes about Shakespeare also contains dialogue fragments from The Tinker's Wedding and The Playboy of the Western World. And this textual evidence enables the date of 1906 to be suggested for its composition. In other words, this, this, these pages are at the opposite extreme from Singh's notes on Dowden's Shakespeare, which were written when he was a teenage undergraduate at the very beginnings of his career. The college notebooks contain many of the the college notebooks, which he takes as an undergraduate, contain many of the elements that would come together in his dramatic art: references to the greatest English language playwright, extensive material on Irish language and literature, an obsessive study of individual words and phrases. But in 1889, in the notebooks, these elements remain separate and unfused, still in unrealized potential. In the other notebook on Shakespeare. Singh is 35. Actually, he's the same age as Shakespeare in that, isn't he? Greying hair, etc. And at the height of his fame as a playwright, a very different stance indeed. Nicholas Green's descriptive note helpfully indicates that the pocketbook in question, quote, contains jottings on literature, particularly on Ibsen and Shakespeare, unquote. But the jottings go further than that, as Singh elaborates a theory about drama across three, not two, major playwrights. His general formulation is that, quote, Unity of atmosphere may vary inversely as the strength of action in a play. He begins with Shakespeare, whose work offers, quote, great diversity held together by strength of action. The word is diversity, D-I-F-F-E-R-S-I-T-Y. Now, Singh had wayward spelling. It's not as bad as Yeats's. But I would prefer to read it as a Finnegan's Wake style verbal conflation of diversity and difference with regard to the atmosphere of Shakespeare's plays, especially as Singh spells diversity correctly elsewhere in the passage. The second major playwright is Ibsen, whose plays, according to Singh, display, quote, weak action, as in Master Builder, given power by strange atmosphere, unquote. Singh concludes with Yeats's play, Where There Is Nothing, where he sees, quote, diversity of action held together by a single character, unquote. The grouping of Yeats's drama with that of Shakespeare and Ibsen is of a piece with Yeats being numbered as one of the great poets in the earlier formulation. It's also ironic and rather touching because as Yeats remarked after Singh died, I never had any idea from him what he thought about my work. But more important, it shows the comparative cast of Singh's mind in making parallels between the figure and practice of Shakespeare and the work he and Yeats were doing in Ireland's National Theatre. We're moving, we're moving, we're moving now into the final section on Playboy. At the close of these reflections on Shakespeare, Singh makes two generalizations about the work of two national playwrights. Quote, Shakespeare's comedies are given unity by an action, Moliere's by an idea, unquote. In the same year, Singh once more grouped Shakespeare and Moliere. 
In the week of the tumultuous premiere of the Playboy of the Western World, Singh wrote to the Irish Times to put straight some remarks he'd made in a rather hot-headed interview he'd given in the Dublin Evening Mail. In that interview, Singh declared, I don't care a rap how the people take it, and went on to describe the Playboy as a comedy, an extravaganza made to amuse. As he points out in his letter to the Irish Times, quote, this interview took place in conditions, i.e. a rioting theatre, that made it nearly impossible for me, in spite of the patience and courtesy of the interview, not going to offend the Daily Mail, uh, to give a clear account of my views about the play and the lines I followed in writing it. He goes on, the Playboy of the Western world is not a play with a purpose in the modern sense of the word. But although parts of it are, or are meant to be, extravagant comedy, still a great deal that is in it and a great deal more that is behind it, is perfectly serious when looked at in a certain light. That is often the case, I think, with comedy, and no one is quite sure today whether Shylock and Alceste should be played seriously or not. There are, he concludes, it may be hinted, several sides to the playboy. Singh here refers to Shakespeare as the Merchant of Venice and Molly as the Misanthrope by the names of the most controversial characters. Dowden, in his book and lectures, discusses the merchant almost exclusively in terms of Portia and the marriage plot. By giving Shakespeare's play the title he does, Singh shifts the emphasis to Shylock and the comedy's potential for tragedy, or at least for a very dark comedy indeed. This is the point to remark that Singh's playboy is marked by a radical generic instability. Others of Singh's plays can be readily and separately denominated as either tragedies or comedies. Just as Shakespeare's friends and editors Hemings and Condell could readily deploy these categories to organise the arrangement of Shakespeare's plays in the first folio of 1623. Most of the plays under the category of comedies in the first folio fit there fairly naturally, but four of the 14 only do so with some strain. The two problem comedies, as they came to be known, The Merchant of Venice and Measure for Measure, and the two late plays, The Winter's Tale and The Tempest, which are an extraordinary generic mix and increasingly came to be called romances. Singh's first and last plays, Riders of the Sea and Dear to the Sorrows, are unequivocally tragedies, as was recognised from the start. The Tinker's Wedding is a Rabelaisian comedy, but one whose bawdiness and anti-clericalism ensured that it was never staged during Singh's lifetime. The One of the Saints was a huge and acknowledged influence on Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Goddard, and the term Beckett used to describe his dramatic breakthrough, he called it a tragic comedy, it's written on the title page, could just as readily be applied to Singh's play about the old blind couple. But Singh's two plays about women trapped in a patriarchal oppression from which the arrival of a stranger offers potential liberation, The Shadow of the Glen and The Playboy of the Western World are a very different and difficult matter when it comes to categorisation. For much of the Playboy's duration, it would have been the audience's belief that Singh's play was operating within the conventions of a Shakespeare romantic comedy. A wedding is imminent for the feisty, beautiful heroine, Peggy Mike, but her intended, the craven and abject Sean Keogh, is unworthy of her. Into his place in shoes steps the figure of Christopher Mahon, whom the characters and the play come to endorse as the playboy of the Western world. Until late in Act Three, it seems likely that according to the conventions of a Shakespearean comedy like A Midsummer Night's Dream, parental opposition will be converted into support and Christie and Peggy will wed. Of course, he goes disastrously wrong in Romeo and Juliet, but that's another story for another day. Um, 
What complicates this development and drives it in a different direction is the return of Christie's allegedly murdered father and the complications this causes, both for his son and the father-slaying narrative in which he has built his reputation. Final bit coming up. The relevant Shakespeare play, and the one explicitly referenced within Singh's Playboy, is Hamlet. It is no accident that Hamlet is the play James Joyce brought into relation with J.M. Singh in the library chapter of Ulysses. There is a loaded and recognisable reference to Hamlet at the beginning of Act 3 of The Playboy, when the two aged barflies, Jimmy Farrell and Philly Cullen, and they're all alone on stage, it's a wonderful scene, sit down at the table in the pub and discuss the possible unearthing of, quote, the two halves of old Mahan's skull at some time in the future. Quote, they'd say it was an old Dane, maybe, was drowned in the flood, unquote. Along with this allusion to the Dane, the context brings to mind the gravedigger scene and the unearthing of Yorick's skull from the beginning of Act 5 in Shakespeare's play. Philly counters with how, as a young man, he used to go to the local graveyard containing the remnants of a man with ties as long as your arm and how he played with the remnants, putting them together for fun. Shakespeare is here making modernist play with the literary ghost of Shakespeare's Hamlet, as Stephen Dedalus is doing in Chapter 9 of Ulysses. The parallel variation between Shakespeare's Hamlet and Singh's Playboy is the unexpected return of the father to challenge his son. In one case, to revenge his murder. In the other, to return to the life of bondage the son endured before trying to kill his father. For the first half of Singh's play... The audience, both on stage and off, and Christie himself, operate on the principle and in the belief that old man is dead. In the middle of his boasting, Christie opens the door and staggers back, exclaiming, saints of glory, holy angels from the throne of light, which are essentially prayers, very similar to what Hamlet and the others say when the ghost appears. When he's asked what ails him, Christie replies, it's the walking spirit of my murdered da. Thus far, thus Hamlet. But far from being a ghost, Old Mahan proves all too alive and very difficult to suppress in the play. He's trying to suppress it and he keeps sort of popping up again. Um, he finally bursts in in Act 3 when Michael James Flaherty has just given his blessing to a wedding between his daughter Peggy and her new suitor. Old Mahan bursts in and knocks his son to the ground. Christie now attempts to kill his father in earnest. The two go outside and Old Mahan is killed. One of them says, I, I, you know, I listened to his heart and he just stopped beating. So the onlookers in Christie's believe. But Old Mahan returns later in the scene, crawling in on his hands and knees, leaving some to inquire, are you coming to be killed a third time? It can be very difficult in this scene play to ascertain whether certain characters are alive or dead. And the denouement of the playboy goes well beyond realism to represent the symbolic death and resurrection of the father figure. In the end... The father remains alive, and there is a reconciliation with his son that argues for a comic rather than a tragic ending for the play. But the triumphant exit of the reconciled father and son is not quite the ending of the playboy the Western world. Rather, the play concludes with the keen or lament, so strongly associated with tragedy on the Aran Islands and in Singh's play Riders the Sea. In this, Pegine, quote, putting her shawl over her head and breaking out into wild lamentations, utters the play's most memorable and its final line. Oh, my grief, I've lost him surely. I've lost the only playboy of the Western world. There is a residue of tragedy in the play, and it is associated with the figure and fate of the woman Peggy Mike. 
For if the play turns from a tragedy into a comedy for Christy Mahon, it takes the alternative route for Peggy, who comes at the end to the piercing tragic recognition of the possibilities she has forfeited. The failure of the play to end with the marriage of Peggy and Christy, and, and in all the versions he did, in all the variations, all the drafts, they were never to marry. The traditional end of Shakespeare's romantic comedies means that the social order of the society represented by Singh remains untransformed, not renewed, and hence subject to continuing critique. Singh and Shakespeare continue mutually to illuminate each other in the Irish theatrical scene. Last year, in this series of talks, the director, Lynn Parker of Rough Magic, spoke of her acclaimed production several years ago of Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew. The company rehearsed the play in Galway, and perhaps inspired by that Western location, found the solution of the perennial problem, and it's certainly a perennial problem when Irish actors address Shakespeare, of how best to crack the language by finding their best means of approach through the language of Singh. In the preface to the play about the Western world, Singh wrote that in a good play, every speech should be as fully flavoured as a nut or an apple. This suggests a Shakespearean linguistic richness, but it may wrongly suggest an over-luxuriance in language that parodists, including Buck Mulligan, have always stressed in their version of what has become to be known derisively as sing-song. But Edward Dowden brilliantly characterised the range and variety rather than the tone uniformity of Shakespeare's language, in a passage which Singh marked in his 1889 notebook. Quote, Dowden writes, The Elizabethan drama gives us the coarse with the fine, the mean with the heroic, the humorous and grotesque with the tragic and terrible, unquote. These stark contrasts of the coarse with the fine can be found in Singh's characteristic undercutting of high rhetoric, as when the widow Quinn responds to Christie's intoxicated, am I after seeing the love light of the star of knowledge shining from her brow with, there's poetry talk, for a girl you see itching and scratching, and she with a stale stink of potching on her from selling in the shop. And Singh's stare to the sorrows can combine the two extremes in a line, I have put away sorrow like a shoe that is worn out and muddy, just as well as Shakespeare's Cleopatra did. Last line. There is one crucial respect in which John Bennington Singh cannot be said to parallel William Shakespeare as a national playwright. He died tragically and prematurely at the age of 37, with seven completed plays, only four of which were staged during his lifetime. Shakespeare died at the age of 56, with at least 36 plays. I mean, I'm not going to argue the number of plays, but there's a lot to his credit. As WWH so well put it, quote, the best labourer dead and all the sheaves to bind. Thank you.